Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Stremming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. All right, everybody, we are due for a Patreon questions mega-sode. Got tons of questions backlogged over in Patreon, and I want to take care of all of them today. So here we go. The first one comes from Connor. Connor writes, per the engagement podcast, in this hypothetical situation, what would your in-the-moment response be? Context. Training in a well-known location, using a thoughtfully scaled reinforcer, asking for very few reps of easy skills. One to two reps in, the dog is looking at the environment, a little bit of latency, light sniffing, some disconnection. Based on prior sessions, you can expect the dog to fully check out, heavy sniffing, walking away, interacting with environment around rep three or four. What's your response in the behaviors in rep one to two? So probably I missed something as far as, you know, if my dog is not quite responding as expected, then I maybe missed something. But if my dog is not responding the way that I'd like in reps one or two, I absolutely do not ask for reps three or four. And I don't beg them to engage or get started again. I'm going to move to a different location. I'm going to put them away. I'm I'm not doing this. And I think that, you know, it's a frustrating answer sometimes for folks to hear that I simply do not train dogs that are disengaged but I don't, which is how I build dogs that are engaged all the time. It's one of the ways that I do it. So asking them repeatedly for things that they cannot do or that are hard for them or put them in conflict between your reinforcers and the environmental reinforcers is not a smart move. So hopefully that helps Connor. The next one comes from Zoe. Zoe writes, I have a two-part question about hunting behaviors. The first is whether you would classify lure coursing as a high adrenaline type of dog sport or exercise, specifically lure coursing for sighthounds. I know a lot of folks take their non-sighthounds coursing. My follow-up to that is whether a decompression walk should be included after this sport. My hounds hunt on decompression walks anyway, which makes me wonder if free hunting and coursing are actually decompressing to them. I think this also just might be a long-winded way of asking where you think lure coursing falls in the dog sports paradigm and whether discussion about dog sports on your podcast would include this one. Interesting question, Zoe, and thanks so much for your contribution here. Love to hear from the sighthound side of things. I think that lure coursing, just like anything else, could be highly adrenalizing and could require decompression after, or could be highly satisfying, Um, probably not decompressing in and of itself, but highly satisfying, which is different. So like if I do something that's just very satisfying to me, I don't need decompression after it, but it doesn't, it isn't decompression. Like all things that are satisfying are not necessarily decompression. So like when I uh, went to the movie theater and watched the Taylor Swift (laughs) era's tour movie, I was highly satisfied by that. I was not decompressed by that, but I didn't require decompression after it. And it's going to be case specific, dog specific as to 
what is true for you and your dogs. I've definitely seen sighthounds that are screaming and vertical and losing their minds about lure coursing. And I wonder if those dogs could use some decompression after. But I also, most of the sighthounds I know are pretty good at the decompression side. Like they're pretty good at taking a nap on the couch after something like that. Whereas a lot of other types of dogs are less good at taking that nap, like once they get themselves worked into that much of an uproar, they have a really hard time coming down. Whereas the sighthounds that I know don't have a hard time coming down, although yours could be different. So it's gonna be case by case. Whether or not I think lure coursing is a sport, I don't think I can answer that question. I don't think I know enough about it. I, I think that we would have to get into what a sport is and what that means. And I think that's a complicated question, but what it is, is a really fun way to let your sight hounds do the thing that they were designed to do and there isn't anything wrong with that. The next one comes from Annalise. Annalise writes, I've been trying to muzzle train my dog on and off for a couple years with some success. I've recently been having her wear it on off-leash walks with friends in the hopes she'll be adjusting to it. I'm wondering if it's a good strategy. She'll opt into wearing it, but she'll still occasionally try to paw it off, and her behavior is noticeably suppressed. She won't play as much with dog friends, and she's way less interested in wildlife. She still responds to cues well. When you muzzle dogs for remedial socialization, do you fully muzzle train them first so they're near 100% comfortable in it? Or do you see the off-leash walks in a fun environment as helping them habituate to it? And there's a tag-along question from Emily who writes, I'm curious about this as well. I've been working on muzzle training my German Shepherd for six plus months and progress is slow. How do you balance needing them to wear it for safety and waiting until they are fully comfortable to have them wear it on walks? I don't think it's realistic to not walk him for months at a time. Okay, so truth time. I really, really frequently just make sure the dog can have the muzzle be put on and that they won't panic about it. And then I put it on them and we go for a walk. And that is really typical for me. So I'm certainly not, you know, waiting for this kind of magical day where yes, they're finally perfectly comfortable and I can now use it. That's not practical and it's also unlikely to happen. It's an uncomfortable piece of equipment for dogs. You can get the best muzzle in the world, the most comfortable muzzle in the world, and I think you should, especially if the dog's gonna wear it a lot, and it's still going to be something the dog would prefer not to wear. And that is, that's simply the truth. So what I would be doing is looking at, as Annalise mentioned, those kind of markers of welfare, how much normal behavior is the dog able to engage in and how much abnormal behavior is the dog engaging in and kind of do your math problem and decide, you know, is this worth it? Is this dog, is this tool giving my dog the freedom that is worth the little bit of discomfort that the dog is clearly in while wearing it. And typically when I use them for remedial socialization, I don't see huge problems. I, it is rare for me to see a dog that is so distressed by the muzzle that we can't use it. It certainly happens, but it's rare. The muzzle usually brings us enough benefits that I find it worth it if they're a little bit uncomfortable with it, as long as it is just kind of, you know, a little bit. All right, next one comes from Liz. Liz writes, okay, here's the scenario. I have a two-year-old male German Shepherd who has historically had problems with arousal around dogs. I'm working really hard from a number of angles to help him grow into as neutral a dog as he'll be. He's coming along, but there's this one dog who's a little wild. She's also a two-year-old German Shepherd who he's gaga over. Sight equals over threshold. 
They've known each other for one and a half years, and this frantic must-get-to behavior hasn't changed. This dog belongs to a friend, a client of mine, and a coach of ours who is a professional dog trainer, so the human side is a little complicated. She tells me they'll settle down with time, and he just isn't. I am unable to communicate with him or work with him when she's around, even 50 feet away. I'm thinking this dog needs to be off limits while he's maturing and developing skills, and if he's still no brain around her, perhaps ongoing. I have a sneaky feeling you're going to say, pick dogs he can be calm around, Liz, and don't rehearse no brain time. I think the only thing that is catching for me a bit is her profession and maybe I just don't know enough. Yes, Liz, that's what I'm going to tell you. You're going to avoid no brain time. You're going to not put your dog in situations that he's clearly telling you he can't handle. And then just for everybody listening, you say these dogs have known each other for a year and a half. Don't let those things go that long, right? Don't say, oh, they're just puppies when they're being wild around each other. They simply shouldn't act in ways that you don't want them to act as adults. They will mature out of their kind of impulsivity and their inability to self-regulate, they will not mature out of their reinforcement history. So absolutely take a break from that dog. And if it's important to you for them to be friends in the future, you're going to need a plan for making that happen. Next one comes from Nina. Nina writes, my 18-month-old coonhound barks excessively when we are driving. She is in a car crate covered in a luminette and she can't see out any windows and we often only drive to decompression walks. Occasionally, she comes on errands with me. I understand she's excited and she's a barky breed, but at home, our training efforts to curb the barking have worked very well. However, when we're in the car, I'm driving, it can't really actively train slash curb the barking. I can handle the barking at home or outside, but it's difficult when we're driving in an enclosed space and driving to a decompression area. Any thoughts on ways to curb the barking while in the car specifically? So Nina, it's a tough one. Car barking is hard because you can't actually be a trainer and drive a car at the same time, and it's not a good idea for you to try. (laughs) So few possibilities. You have already cut the visual stimuli coming in. I wonder if you've tried the opposite. I wonder if you've tried making sure he can see out. I don't know if that would help, but it might. The other question I have for you is, is he doing this because of his anticipation of the decompression walks? And so if so, do you need to actually go on a lot more boring car rides? So that's another thought. Other than that, as far as positive solutions go, making sure that he is eating most of the time that you're driving is kind of your only other option left, like giving him a frozen raw bone or a frozen Kong as you head out to the trailhead and seeing if that reduces the barking at all. So a couple of suggestions for you, although not a perfect solution. All right, next one is from Mel. Mel writes, this one is kind of open-ended. Lupita, eight-month-old rescue, and I are headed back down to Mexico for the winter where she will be encountering street dogs for the first time. For context, I'm currently working hard on Lupita's feelings towards other dogs, and I am, simply put, feeling stressed about how things are going to go. She's either going to become super socially savvy or get beaten up. I don't even know how to prepare, and I'm wondering if you have any general thoughts about pet dog plus street dog interactions and if there's anything you would advise to work on before we leave. Mel, I don't have expertise in street dogs and them approaching your dog. That's not an area I've encountered. It's not something that any of my clients have worked through with me either. So this is what I think, but I do not know. I think I would treat it the same that I treat everything else, which is that I'm going to use spray shield or some other kind of deterrent to keep dogs away from my dog who appear dangerous. I am going to mostly allow dog-dog interactions to happen because most dog-dog interactions are okay and turn out okay. 
but I'm gonna have that spray shield as a backup in case the interaction's not okay. And I think probably a big deal when, when you get there is going to be observing you know, what dogs are gonna be not taken kindly to you walking through their space and what dogs are going to be okay and kind of what areas are safe for you and what areas are not. Which is something that I do anyway. I don't walk my dogs in plenty of situations because I don't see the situation as being safe. I don't walk my dogs in suburban neighborhoods, for instance. The worst incidences that I've had or that my clients have ever had were, about, were, were regarding dogs that approach their dog who were never meant to be off leash. They escaped from their backyard, they escaped from an open garage, etc. Those tend to be the worst dog fights and the worst things that I have experienced or that my clients have experienced. And so I don't walk my dogs in that situation. You are going to need to figure out what situations are safe for you and what situations are not. And there is going to be some trial and error. I would not go out with some kind of protective something so that you can stop a dog fight if you need to. Best of luck, Mel. Next one comes from Robin. Robin writes, we're often told to throw a reset treat when our dog messes up to reset them. How does the dog know the difference between a reset treat for messing up or me saying get it and throwing a treat when he does the exercise correctly? The only difference in the action is the verbal get it. I feel like I'm missing something here. For example, teaching distance drops. So this is a down. Um, don't confuse it listeners with like saying drop it like drop a thing this is a down for obedience uh robin writes one give the command drop to a dog drops i say get it throw a treat or to b dog does not drop i throw a reset treat three dog gets treat and refocuses back to me four while dog is eating i move to different position five loop continues so i'm gonna i think that there's more to this question than just the some of its parts. So, so let's talk about it. So the first part of the question, how does the dog know the difference between a reset treat and a treat I've given in an attempt to reinforce behavior? And the answer is they don't. <laughs> we make ourselves feel better by attaching a marker cue to one of them, <laughs> but there has to be other behaviors that are different from you to make that look different. So there kind of needs to be an instant marker and then throw the food in one version. So in the version that's meant to reinforce. And then I would pause toss food in the other version. But the big deal here isn't that. The big deal is that the majority of the time the dog's getting it right. If the dog gets it wrong so infrequently that it's inconsequential, that is when you're doing what you need to be doing. So in the scenario of working on the drop on recall, if you are throwing reset treats frequently enough to worry about it, you need a different training plan. This training plan's not working for you because absolutely the dog will not know the difference and you will continue to have a problem. I hope that that answers your question, Robin. And if anybody else has more questions about that kind of stuff, bring them over to Patreon. The next one comes from Mary and Mary writes, several details about her two and a half year old working line Kelpie. And to sum it up, the dog's got a lot of struggles, lots of resource guarding, seemingly prey driven behavior towards small dogs and aggression overall towards other dogs. Mary's been working really hard on this dog since she was young and is feeling disheartened. She's wondering if this dog will ever be able to trial in agility. And in her words, can you tell me that it is possible that this wild, fierce, frankly extraordinary girl can be civilized? Is it not too late? Which set of techniques would be the best to head to slash back to? Mary, I'm sorry that you're struggling. It's 
Gosh, it's so hard when we have a ton of dogs on our hands. I do tend to believe that things can get better, but things can only get better if the problems that you don't want to be seeing are able to be stopped in their tracks, meaning they're not being practiced. If these behaviors continue to be practiced, the dog will not get better. So managing the situation so that the behaviors are not practiced while you build skills, and I would focus hard on building skills. I would not focus so hard on maybe trying to change her feelings or regulate her emotions for her. I would focus on skills instead. And if you have most of her experiences be accessing smart skills, very few, if any, experiences where she is in situations where she cannot access those skills, then she will get better. And this is a big question for Patreon. And so I hope that you will also find me in the membership and perhaps private coaching. Next one comes from Diane. Diane writes, you say that if our partner cannot stay connected with us at a trial, we should not have attended. My terrier cues at practice regularly and has good recall where we train. How can I introduce my person, Russell, to new spaces and provide exposure to the new sights and sense of a trial space if we don't go? So Diane, first of all, you can go and you cannot enter and you can see how your dog's connection is to you there. You also can make your training look more like the trial. And a big one there is that you have no reinforcers on you in the ring. So if you're still running your courses and training with food in your hand or a toy in your hand, or even a bait bag on, that's something I would get away from, work on some really good sustainable reinforcement strategies. If you have done all that, if the dog can run really beautifully at practice, knowing that the reinforcement is not in the ring with you, if the dog can walk around an agility trial and pay attention to you, then I would say that you are ready to enter. And if the dog disengages, collect them, you were wrong, end trial or scratch that run and go make a new plan with your trainer. Sometime, at some point we do have to rip the bandaid off and go try, but we shouldn't go try if we believe it's not going to go well. So we need to do everything that we can to stack the deck in our favor to help it go well. I hope that helps. Next one's from Sky. Sky writes pros and cons of teaching a sit versus down versus stand emergency halt. I don't have any hunting or hunt trialing intentions with my adolescent German short hair pointer. So I don't have to worry about any regulations within those contexts. Our capturing stillness work from Joe Lorenz has been going 10 times better than I expected. And I want to pause to weigh all my options before jumping into adding a cue. So first of all, if you've got the behavior, add the cue as soon as possible. But second of all, I don't think it matters. What I think is best is doing what your dog is, what's going to come easily to your dog. So like a lie down usually comes really easily to my border collies. So that is something that I will teach them versus my Icelandic is going to do better if I just ask her to wait and she's allowed to stand or sit or assume any position that I want. Sounds like you're doing some awesome training, Sky. Keep it up. Next one from Connor. Connor writes, prior to adding another dog, what are some skills the current dog should know and behaviors you want sorted? What are some skills the human should know and have sorted? Just re-listen to multi-dog households, upgrade dogs, third dog paralysis, etc. And while I'm not currently on a timeline for my next dog, I'm stuck between everything must be flawless and that's not possible, so F it. Well, number one, it's not possible for everything to be flawless, so you can just kind of get rid of that right now. I would also, I know you're in the membership, Connor, make sure that you go through the household harmony course over there and get a refresher. 
What I want is self-regulatory behaviors. I want the dogs to choose to not blast forward at every single thing that they want. I want recalls good. I want off-leash behavior really good. I want leash walking behavior really good. I want name responses. Those are all dog skills. And basically it's like, are you no longer a teenager? Are you an adult who can listen and function in a variety of circumstances? Because if that's true, I'm probably ready for another puppy. It's funny because I've got the most dogs I've ever had personally. I have four and I've lived with up to eight, but I've never had four that belong to me uh, as their primary person. And this happened because Rhea is perfect, my Icelandic. She is the easiest, most wonderful, joyous little creature. I don't get a border collie puppy after a border collie for a long time. I was not ready for another border collie when I got Rhea even because I didn't think that current youngest border collie at the time, Felix, was you know, where I wanted him to be. I don't expect to get another puppy after Carson for a really long time too. She's my five-month-old border collie puppy. But Rhea had all the behaviors I wanted her to have. She was decently trained in sports and where I wanted her to be in sports. And so when the puppy presented itself, I jumped on it. But I typically wait until a dog is four or five before getting another one because they're fully past that adolescence phase and usually more civilized. As far as stuff that the human needs to know, the human needs to be able to see subtle signs of resource guarding and needs to be able to kind of manage their household, manage high arousal, events, manage thresholds, things like that. Next one comes from Zoe who writes, my puppy eats everything on decompression walks, wood, feces, acorns. We're working on his gut health with the vet, but there appears to be nothing wrong. Does he need to be on a long line until he stops eating everything? How would you approach this? No one likes this answer, Zoe, but I let them eat everything unless they are making themselves sick. Um, I, I don't helicopter them about it. I don't hover. I pretty much just let it go. Like I'll distract. Like if they're doing something that if they're eating something I don't want to eat, I'll just take another trail. I'll be like, oh, everybody's going this way. Oh, I guess you're being left behind. Like I'll just leave them behind, but I don't approach them. I don't try to take it away. I don't try to trade them. I try to, I might try to distract them if I really don't want them to eat it. But I think that we create problems a lot of the time by trying to solve this or trying to stop it. What they're doing is natural, normal behavior and we kind of should just leave it alone. So the distraction piece, the running the other direction, going away, being more interesting or you and the other dog get more interesting is one thing that you can try. But in general, if the puppy's gut is healthy, like the vet says, I wouldn't worry that much about it. Next one comes from Ellen. Ellen writes, I recently found your podcast and I've been working my way through them chronologically. I recently listened to the one on coercion. Here's my dilemma. One of my dogs, a four and a half year old beagle has extreme food drive. There's no such thing as a low or moderate value. It's either high or brain numbing high. I think she would walk through fire for a piece of iceberg lettuce. I've yet to find something she won't eat, let alone something she actually doesn't like. I'm curious what your thoughts are on dealing with dogs like this. Am I being coercive? She loves to train, but is it just all about the food? And yes, we have a wonderful relationship outside of training. Edited to add that I've listened to a few more episodes. She 
always gets regular meals and I tend to train right after a meal in the hopes that I might lessen the excitement. It doesn't. Ellen, it sounds like you're doing just fine. I don't think you need to worry about this too much. Dogs that would walk through fire for iceberg lettuce are going to walk through fire for iceberg lettuce and I don't think you should concern yourself. It doesn't sound to me like you're doing anything wrong. And what I would focus really hard on is getting some really good clarity around your food to make sure that none of this excitement is frustration. Next one from Connor. Going back through all the podcasts and Cog Dog Club recordings related to food, can you talk more about when food isn't a reinforcer requiring eating a piece of food before the fun thing, Osborne's eat food out of my hand before toss food, why you might interact with it that way and how to do so without damaging the dog's relationship with food. So in the example that you um, use from Ash Osborne, food is acting as a reinforcer. It's just the tossed food is acting as a reinforcer for the from hand food. So in that case, I don't think that this applies. What you're really talking about is asking the dog to eat food when food isn't acting as a reinforcer in that scenario because what the dog is after is say maybe getting out of the car or something like that. If it's a behavior my dog can access in that moment, it will not damage their relationship to food. Isn't a behavior my dog can do and I'm insisting it on it and I'm being pushy and I'm being a tyrant, it will. Hope that answers your question. And then as a tag along question, Connor also writes, let's say a dog generally doesn't eat for the first half of their decompression walk especially in new environments, only accepting food after they get their yayas out. Where's the midpoint between knowing that loss of food fluency requires a split, removing the dog from the environment, and also knowing that agency and free movement in nature is essential? It depends. What are my goals for this dog? Is this a dog that is in my care that I just need to exercise and I don't need to train? Because then I might just let the dog exercise. This is one of my dogs? Absolutely not. <laughs> They're eating. They're eating before we go very far. I don't care. I can walk around the same tree until you eat. And then we can keep walking. But also, it never gets to that point with my dogs. Because eating is the number one thing that we're working on the second that they come home. In order for them to have agency and freedom of movement in nature, they must listen to me. Therefore, they must eat. Therefore, teaching them to respond to me and eat food is essential in order to give them that agency that they need. All right, Brittany writes, Salem is my almost three-year-old intact male German Shepherd, and he struggled with dog and human reactivity since I brought him home at seven months. However, he was always very submissive to my now nine-year-old Siberian Husky Mako, and honestly just adored him. However, about three or four months ago, we were in the backyard and Salem attacked Mako with the intent to do serious damage. I saw no signs leading up to the altercation and no behavior changes in either dog in the days, weeks, months leading up to the attack. I have three other intact male Siberians that Salem gets along with fabulously. I'm implementing a management plan and have appointments made to get both dogs checked out for underlying medical issues, but I'm just curious as to if such a severe change in the behavior is common. I know German Shepherds can be same-sex aggressive, but I find it odd that he's singling out my oldest male and has zero issue with the males closest in age to him. So Brittany, this is way more complicated than a Patreon question truly calls for, but here are kind of some basic thoughts. Number one, it could be that very normal same-sex aggression that shows up when German Shepherds kind of hit maturity and he's simply chosen the weakest to target because that is your oldest dog that he's targeting because he's not going to take on them all and he knows he's not. So that could be it. 
And then if you lost your nine-year-old, he might move on to the next one. It, that, that could also happen. But you said he had, he's had behavior problems since you got him at seven months old. So I also wonder about him and kind of his general status. Like, does he have, does he have any health concerns? Like you said, you're going to get that checked out. Does he have any pain concerns? Like how's his spinal health being a German shepherd? Those would all be questions that I have. You mentioned that he was always very submissive to this dog and, and that they, he actually adored him. I wonder if he adored the other ones. I wonder if he ignored the other ones because I don't see dogs that are neutral to each other develop major fighting issues. I see dogs that are like best friends together all the time or kind of don't like each other from the beginning developing problems. I don't see neutrality becoming problematic. I see big feelings in either direction sometimes becoming problematic. So that's another kind of thought for you to ponder and toss around. Another from Connor. What's your take on the phrase dogs need a job? How do you define it? Do you agree with it? Does it need a qualifier? Or do you think there's a better way to phrase a similar concept? I mean, I kind of hate it because I don't think it makes any sense to like an average person. If you tell a person, well, you can adopt this dog, but it's going to need a job. You're going to really need to operationalize that for a person. Like a person will be like, they have a job. It's watching my children play in the yard. They have a job. It's laying on the porch, barking at people while I'm gone all day. Like I, I kind of hate it. I think we have to operationalize it. I think we have to say, you know, this is my Icelandic sheepdog. Her needs center around human interaction and companionship. That's the number one thing that she needs. She does not require a ton of training, but she enjoys training and she's very smart. And so that kind of cognitive enrichment is good for her. Versus, this is my border collie puppy Carson. She's five months old. She has to use her brain in challenging ways every single day and she has to use her body in challenging ways every single day in order for her to be semi-livable okay so th those are two very very different dogs and i think we should be more specific like that and we i think we should be more clear so i kind of hate that phrase and i think you probably knew that when you asked christine writes pawing for attention how do i change the behavior of my 18 month old border collie for asking for attention by striking me with his paw. He just comes up and bashes me. Often I'm taken unaware. I withdraw my arm and he puts his paw down and I stroke. I've developed a nice chain there. As soon as I stop stroking, up comes the paw again. I don't want to constantly send him away as I enjoy stroking him, but not on these terms. We have to stop, Christine. <laughs> you have to stop petting him for doing it. It is gonna, for a long time, he's gonna get more obnoxious. He's gonna go through an extinction trial. And he's going to keep pawing you and you have to just keep ignoring it. And then you also have to get really, really good at noticing when he's not doing it and petting him when he's not doing it. And that's the thing that people are bad at. So that's the thing you've got to work really, really hard on. Morgan writes, where's the line between FOMO, that's fear of missing out, and separation anxiety? I'm coming at this from a breeding lens. At what point do you feel like it's a big red flag? Well, I think that let's operationalize FOMO a little bit. Let's say that you know dogs that vocalize or become distressed when they are separated from the group or not being included in an activity fall on the spectrum of separation-related behavior concerns. Okay, so that's true. And I do find that dogs that are higher in that so-called FOMO often come from breeds who might have a tendency towards separation-related behavior concerns. The exception being like just working line dogs, working type dogs that are just desperate to do something and it's not about being with you and it's not about being separated. It's about needing activities. That's a different thing than the just, no, I need to be with you. I'm upset that I'm not with you kind of FOMO. So 
refer back to the episodes on separation anxiety to kind of get some better definitions of what that is and what it looks like. I would be thinking about it from a breeding lens. I think you're smart to look at those behaviors. Think about selecting away from them, but also know that you're going to select away from other things that you probably like when you do so. But maybe more so if you're breeding puppies, setting the puppies up with like starting happy crating before they go home and things like that to help them. All right, that's it for the Patreon questions megasode. Thanks everybody for your questions. Catch you next time. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.